telling uh, a summary of a story that is uh, it, it's very emotional to me. It's very deep, and it has been a part of my life for as long as I can uh, remember. Um, there are lots of highs. There are lots of lows, and some of you may know it. Some of you may not. It is the the classic epic uh, known as as Star Wars. Um, yeah, y'all weren't expecting that, were you? <clears throat> um, my mama got me watching that when I was four. That we watched it every Christmas, and I'm not going to tell all of it. I'm just going to tell the parts that might remind you a little bit of John Wayne, maybe a little bit of an opera or an epic poem. Or anyway, you're introduced to this guy at the very beginning named Luke, who has never met his dad, but he heard that his dad was an amazing pilot. Um, and he runs across somebody who knew him, and he, he says, uh, well, whatever happened to him? And Obi-Wan says, Luke, your, your father Anakin's dead. He's been dead for a long time. And so you go the entire rest of episode four. Nobody understands why we started with episode four, but we did. You go the entire rest of episode four thinking that Luke's father is dead. He's gone. And then you get to the second movie, and Luke has proceeded in his training, and he's told that you know, he's going to have to go and face this scourge of the evil empire named Darth Vader, which if you know anything of other language, literally means dark father. So it kind of spoils it for you. But Luke fights Darth Vader, and one of the last things Darth Vader says to Luke as Luke is losing the fight is Darth Vader says... In the iconic classic line, Luke, I am your father. And Luke goes, no, and then almost dies And because he's, he's just dealing with the fact that his father is this evil scourge of the galaxy that everyone hates. He's a mass murderer. He is wicked incarnate. And Luke can't process that his dad would be this wicked man. And so for the entirety of the third movie, Luke makes it his mission not to kill Darth Vader, but to save him. Because he says to him, I know that there has to be good in you because you're my father and there's good in me and I'm not going to give up on you. And Darth Vader says, it's too late for me, son. You can only come with me. I can't go with you. And Luke says, I don't believe that. And I'm not going to believe that. And so they continue fighting and Darth Vader's being egged on by the man who's created him in him this monster. And you see him beating Luke's sword down over and over and over again until finally Luke drops his sword and he's laying there hopeless, defeated by his father who has become the shadow of his former self. Someone so wicked that those who knew him best said he was dead. And Darth Vader's teacher says, go ahead, finish him. And Luke looks up at him and he says, you won't do it. You're not as evil as you think you are. There's good left in you. And the emperor laughs and because he thinks there's not. And Darth Vader, in a last gasp, as he almost lays dying because this has taken everything out of him, he turns around 
and instead of slaying his son, slays the emperor. And as they're running out and trying to escape because the building is crashing down over them, Luke says, Dad, no, you're not going to die. I'm getting you out of here. I'm going to save you. And his father says, Luke, you've got to leave. You can't make it out. You've already saved me. There was good in me. You saw it in me when nobody else did. That the drama of this entire three set of movies, it has nothing to do, it's, it's not really about space. That's why people get turned off about it. It's not really about space. It's about this relationship between a father and a son. A father who everyone thought was too far gone. That there was no more good left in him. That there was no hope. But the, his son saw him and said... No, everybody else might have given up hope on him, but I'm not going to. Is there anybody in your life you've given up hope on? Somebody that maybe you think they're just too far gone. They've done too much. They've been too many places. They've bad-mouthed the church. They've bad-mouthed you. Maybe they've turned their back on Stapleton Baptist and said, I won't ever have anything to do with that church as long as I live. And you actually believe them. Is there anybody like that? Maybe it's your brother. Maybe it's your sister. Maybe it's your mom. Maybe it's your dad. Maybe it's your son, your daughter, your niece, your nephew. You've given up because they've made it known to you in no uncertain terms. I am never coming back. I am never going to live that Christian life that you think I ought to live. I think you're wrong and I'm going to do what I want to do. So help me whatever I want to believe in that's not God. Have you ever had that experience with somebody? It's heartbreaking, isn't it? To look at them and have them say, there's no hope for me, not the way you think it is. And you know what? I don't want the hope that you have to offer. It's easy to just give up, isn't it? Good news is, Scripture tells you not to do that. Stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, and see that there's still hope. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000... Of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Father, I pray that as we study this passage this morning, we would leave with an abiding hope that there is no one who is too far gone to be outside your reach, that your arm is not weak, that it cannot stretch out to save, 
And Lord, we pray, I pray, that if there's anybody in this room that thinks they're too far gone, that you would pull them home. And if there's anybody in this room that thinks they have someone who is too far gone, Lord, I pray that you would give them hope that you can pull even them back to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I was so excited about getting to tell the Star Wars story this morning. Y'all don't even know. I'm a a geek. I'm a geek. I own it. It, it, It's okay. Y'all, if you're you're a geek and you're ashamed about it, don't be. Because geeks rule the world, frankly. So, Um, so I... Uh, but I look forward to it because it's actually, it, it is a great story about there never being an excuse to, to give up hope. That there's always a chance that someone can be saved. If there's breath in their lungs, they can be. And that's exactly what you see in the seventh chapter of the book of Revelation. I want to preface this by drawing attention to the fact that up until this point of the book of Revelation, have you noticed that? Israel has not really been mentioned, have they? There's been nothing about the Old Testament people of God, has there been? They're just conspicuously just disappeared. Which is interesting since so much of the book of Revelation has pulled on Old Testament imagery to explain what God is doing. Right? If you've been here with us for, for the, the duration of the study, you'll remember all the times that I said, hey, this recalls the Old Testament. This recalls the Old Testament. This recalls the Old Testament. But we haven't talked about the Jews at all. It's been almost entirely a discussion of the Gentiles. Well, why is that? We'll see. I want us to see. Two points this morning. This is a very bad Baptist sermon because I've only got two points. I'm supposed to have three. But I can only have two if the text gives me two. So I've got two this morning. I want us to see first that God always has a plan, even when we don't see it. Okay? God always has a plan, even when we don't see it. Verse 1, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, the sea, or on any tree. So there are some literality issues here. Um, First off, you need to understand that the Bible does not always intend to be scientifically literal. Somebody out there might say, Oh, well, obviously the Bible is incorrect here because we know that the earth is round. The earth does not have four corners. Yeah, well, the Bible also says the sun rises, but all of us know that the sun doesn't go up and down, right? But if I say the sun rises, you know what I mean, don't you? That means that the earth has rotated to the point where it looks to us like the sun is going up. When we say the sun rises, all we mean is that a new day has started. So when someone says the four corners of the earth, you know what they mean, don't you? You It means the breadth and entirety of the globe. You, You know, you can say, I searched to the four corners of the earth. And what does that mean? Does that mean that you went as far north, as far south, as far east, and as far west as you could? Or does that just mean that you searched high and low for something? That means you searched high and low. So... When John says he sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, what he's saying is that these four angels that he saw are withholding 
whatever these winds are from blowing over the entirety of the globe. It seems to mean the whole earth. And the text itself doesn't seem to mean literal winds. Because the text tells us what it means when it says that. If you look down in verse 3, these angels are given the injunction, do not harm. Do not harm. That wind is used in ancient literature, including Scripture, a lot to symbolize judgment. That these four angels are almost standing in a managerial position over God's judgment that is about to be poured out on the entirety of the globe. So we don't mean literal four corners. We don't necessarily mean literal winds, though winds might be part of it. What we mean is that there is judgment that is about to be unleashed on the entirety of the globe, and the only thing that is stopping it, holding it back, is these four angels that God has given the task of standing there and holding it until he says, let her rip. That's what John sees. That they're holding it back that it would not blow or, or, or damage or harm the earth, the sea, or any tree. But in verse 2, John sees another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. So when this angel rises up, he rises up with a seal of the living God. Now that's a very Old Testament term, isn't it? If you read your Old Testament a lot, you'll, you'll hear the term living God over and over again. Do you know why the term living God gained popularity in the Old Testament? Well, it's because Israel had a problem with these little things called idols. That they, that they worshipped false gods when they got mixed up with other people of the land that they were in. Uh, <clears throat> this is not... This, what I'm about to share with you is not biblical. It's not historical. It's a, it's a Jewish legend that kind of makes this point. So if you go looking for this in your Bible, you're not going to find it. Jewish legend holds that Abraham's father was an, an idolsmith, that he made little, little idols that, that was sold. And Abraham detested this about his father. Again, Jewish legend told to, to teach a lesson or make a point. And so Abraham's father was out one day doing something else. And Abraham took and destroyed a bunch of smaller idols with a hammer. And took the hammer and put it in the hands of a really big idol that his father had made. And his father came back in and saw all the destruction around the shop. And saw the hammer in the hands of the big idol and turned around and looked at his son and said, Son, what did you do? And Abraham says, You know, Dad, it's the craziest thing. I didn't actually do anything. I walked into the room and I saw this big idol over here get mad that all these little ones were in the room with him. So he picked up your hammer and he beat them into pieces. And when I came in, he was standing here holding the hammer. And Abraham's dad was like, You numbskull? You know that doesn't happen. We make the idols. We hold the hammer. They don't hold the hammer. This thing couldn't have done this. So Abraham tells his dad, so if you know good and well that the idol can't pick up the hammer, that you pick up the hammer on the idol, then why do you trust them to do anything for you? 
again, Jewish legend, it's not in the Bible, but it makes a very strong point, doesn't it? That Abraham's dad in the story knew that the idols couldn't do anything. Why? Because they're not alive. There's only one God who is alive. And if you worship any other God, you're not worshiping a living God. You're worshiping a God who doesn't exist. And bonus question for you. If someone doesn't exist, how much can they do for you? Goose egg. They can't do anything for you. It doesn't matter how passionately you're devoted for them. It doesn't matter how much money you give, how much time you spend studying their scriptures, how many pictures of them you have hanging in your house. It doesn't matter. They're not there. They can't do anything for you. There's only one living God. If you worship anybody else, you're not gonna, he's, he's not going to do anything to help you. Okay, so this angel rises up with the seal of the living God. And he cries out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea and says, do not harm the earth, sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So let's take and break this down for just a minute. I don't have a reason textually to, to cross-reference what I'm about to tell you, but this is immediately what pops into my mind when I hear this angel shout with a loud voice. If you go back into Genesis when Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, he's put him up on the altar because God had told him, go up on this mountain and sacrifice your son to me. And Abraham is doing what God told him to do, and he's painstakingly going through every step, and Isaac is going with him, and he gets to the top of the mountain, and he binds Isaac, and he puts him on the altar, and he raises his knife to sacrifice his son, and then what happens? God says, Stop! With a loud voice. That it's a, the knife is about to come down. But God says, Stop! Something else has to happen first. That God, in this chapter, in chapter 7, the four winds of His judgment are about to blow over the entirety of the globe and damage everything on it. And these angels are getting ready for their cue. They're about to let her rip. But all of a sudden, God sends another angel who says, Stop! Something's got to happen first. That I've got a seal here from our God that says, I've got some folks that I have to mark off that you're not allowed to touch. That they have a mission. They have a job now. And the fact that it's the seal of the living God, that the angel says, our God, means that it seems like these people have been worshiping some other God that has not been the living God up to this point. But they're coming home. That all of a sudden now, this people belong to the living God. That they serve the living God. That they share a God with these angels. That the angels say, hang on, stop. You can't blow this wind on them because we all play for the same team now. So be sure you don't hurt them. There's a group of God's servants that have to be set aside. That there's some divine protection that has to be laid down. To apply this, I want you to consider two separate perspectives, okay? Consider two different perspectives at play here. From the perspective of everybody on earth, 
What's going on right now? Now think back. We're on seal number six at this point. We've been opening the title deed to earth throughout Revelation. We're on seal number six. Seal number one was the advent of the Antichrist. This leader that showed up that everybody thought was going to bring peace and prosperity like the world had never seen. But what followed in his wake was seals two, three, and four. Conflict, famine, and death unleashed on the globe like no one had ever seen. That the earth is in total and abject chaos. That no one is safe with his neighbor. There's not enough food to go around. A huge percentage of the earth's population has probably already died. The fifth seal happens in heaven. People people on earth don't see it. The sixth seal, however, everybody on earth sees. It's the cosmic disturbances. The sun has gone black. The moon has turned red like blood. That There are massive earthquakes. uh, Geological, meteorological activity of some sort in the sky to the point where John says it's rolled up like a scroll. And everybody on the earth is crying out for, for the mountains and hills to fall on them and hide them from the face of the one who sits on the throne. That they're terrified because the, the, the earth is in total and absolute chaos and everything they thought was going to be good is falling apart in their hands and they're crying out. Oh, none of this makes sense. This is all chaos. This is out of control. There's no hope. That's the earthly perspective. But now consider the heavenly perspective. From the perspective of those who are in heaven, including John, everything is calmly proceeding according to plan. None of this judgment is out of control. That God has angels holding it back, which it cannot pass until He says to let it pass. That God can stop it and start it whenever He wants. No one in heaven is panicking, are they? Do you see any angels panicking at all in the book of Revelation at this point? No, the only one who panics back before the scroll is open is John. In chapter 5, verse 4. Why? Because John's still got an earthly perspective. He's not been a resident of heaven up to this point. He knows the Lord, but he's he's a a little earthling. (laughs) He doesn't know what's going on. He's watching something that's bigger and more grandiose and huge than anything he's ever seen. So he's not used to the the calmness that is heaven. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, you say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. How? As it is in heaven. God's will is never questioned or, or is a concern in heaven. There's no fear. There's no worry. There's no panic. There's no chaos. That it is very obvious in heaven that God has this meticulously planned out. Nothing escapes His sight. Nothing escapes His control. He never makes a mistake. He's never early. He's never late. He always arrives exactly when He means to. So let's take and look at this personally. Do you ever look out at your world or maybe potentially your life and say this is utter disordered chaos? I cannot make sense of anything. I don't see any plan. This makes no sense. Ever done that? Maybe the world or your life personally that everything is falling apart. Never forget that that's not the perspective with which heaven views your life. That is not the perspective with which heaven views the world. 
from God's perspective, which, remind you, is the only perspective that matters. God's perspective is the only perspective that matters. Because it's the only one that's completely right. God looks down at your life. God looks down at the world and sees everything proceeding exactly as he rules it. Nothing has ever pulled one over on him. He's never been shocked. He's never been surprised. He's never been confused or what my mama used to say, befuddled. (laughs) You ever felt befuddled? (laughs) Bamboozled? God's never experienced that. It all makes, this is a truism almost that we say all the time, God's in control, Jesus is still on his throne, but have you ever noticed the person who's telling you that is the person who's not going through the crisis? When you're the one going through the crisis, it's a lot harder to remember that Jesus is in control and God's still on his throne, isn't it? Because you're so distracted by the blackened sun and the reddened moon and the earthquakes and the sky rolling up like a scroll and you're screaming, what's going on? And then some well-meaning individual comes and pats you on the back and says, Jesus is still in control, honey. (laughs) And in your brain, you're thinking, yeah, I wish he'd control you right on out of here because you're not helping. (laughs) They mean well. But, but the truth is, y'all, they're right. They may not understand the depth or gravity of what they just said. But God is still in control in the midst of the chaos, isn't He? He is. And if you were worried that God was a mean, evil, capricious God, that wouldn't help you at all. But is God that way? No. God is good. He is just. He is holy. He's loving. He's kind. Which means you don't need to fear Him being in control in the middle of chaos. That should comfort you. So that's generally and privately for ourselves. But what about personally? Do you have a loved one whose life you look at and it gives you spiritual anxiety because it looks like their life is completely out of control? Do not ever forget that not even this person has the ability to buck God's power, even if it seems like they have the ability to buck yours. I don't understand. I've told them. I've taught them. I've led them. And they still dove headlong into exactly where I told them not to go. Yeah, but... Just because they can buck your power doesn't mean they can buck His. God has the power to allow somebody to make a mistake. God also has the power to yank them out of it. His arm is not shortened that He cannot save. That there is not a person on this planet with breath in their lungs that God cannot reach from the highest heights of heaven to the depths of hell itself. There's no one out of his range. Now, when I say hell itself, I mean figuratively to the lowest points on this earth. Once someone has breathed their last and gone into eternity without God, at that point, there's, there's no hope. 
But as long as someone lives and breathes on this earth, God can pull them out. I don't care if you're a mom, a dad, a brother, or a sister. Everybody is ultimately responsible for their own decisions. But no one has gone so far that God, that they have escaped God's loving rulership. No one's gone that far. And you may not understand it. And y'all, you've got a pastor who tries to make it a point in pastoral counseling. Have you ever had somebody tell you, well, God, God must have... God, God's just going to bring about something. God, God, God's got a purpose for this. Or, God help you. I hope no one's ever told you this. You lose a loved one and somebody says, well, God must have needed another angel in heaven. First off, humans don't turn into angels. Okay? Second, it's insulting to God to insinuate that He needs anything. Third, how dare you try and comfort somebody that way? We don't know why God allows something to happen. And do you know Scripture doesn't tell us that God ever promises to give us an explanation for why things happen. That's the entirety of the book of Job. Job 42, 1 through 6 on your handout. That Job has spent the entirety of the book saying, I'm going to make my case to God. I'm going to tell Him that my life is chaos and I don't deserve chaos. This world is out of control. This world is wicked. This world is evil. I'm suffering and I shouldn't be suffering. I should be blessed because I've obeyed God to the best of my ability. I've repented when I've done wrong and I still suffer. So I'm going to call God and I'm going to present my case to Him and God will say, Oh Job, I'm so sorry. I never should have visited this on you that I just did not understand. But when God shows up to Job at the end of the book, Job thinks he's going to make his case. And God says, well, how about this, Job? Put your big boy britches on and let me show you what I do on a daily basis. And he goes from the heights of heaven to the depths of the earth and says, I want you to see every molecule that I manage at one time. I want you to see how much bigger than just one person the universe I rule is. And after seeing the entirety of creation from God's perspective, God says, so do you want to do this? Do you want to manage this? Tell me what your plan from the beginning was. Because I, knew, I know you were there, right Job? You're just as ancient as I am. You're just as wise as I am. You tell me what I should have done that would have been better. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. That Job's response to God is, I had no idea how big you were and how much bigger your plan was than just me. But I know that you're good. And so even though I don't have an explanation, I will trust in the God who rules. So you personally, even when you can't see God's plan, even when your earth is chaos, 
When nothing functions the way it's supposed to, you may not ever get an explanation. It may never make sense to you, but you can trust in the God who rules. So, God always has a plan, even when it doesn't seem like it. And then second, God always has the power, even when we have given up hope. Now, I'm not going to read this long list of tribes again, okay? That, that seems like it would be a little bit excessive. But, John hears the number of those who've been sealed. And it's 12,000 from all these tribes of Israel. Now, we'll give you some trivia here about this list. This list is unique. Nowhere in the Bible is this list of tribes presented this way. Normally, Reuben is presented, presented first because Reuben was the firstborn. Who's presented first in this list? Judah. Why? Well, because the king always gets to go first. Judah is Jesus' tribe. Next, if you'll notice, if you know your Old Testament... Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Joseph is never listed with the twelve tribes, but his two sons are always listed as half-tribes, both of them together representing Joseph. But Ephraim is conspicuously absent from this list. And Joseph is listed along with his son Manasseh. Where did Ephraim go? I don't know. You'll also notice that Levi is listed. Levi is usually not listed. Why? Because they were the priestly tribe. That their inheritance was the service of the Lord. They did not have a land allotment like the other tribes did. And yet, Levi is listed here. Why? Well, because we have a new great high priest. There's no need for another priesthood. So they're just like all the other ones. Where is Dan? Dan's not there. I'm going to give you my big theological answer again. I don't know. The point is, this is unique. But it's very specifically, very clearly Jewish. This is Israeli. Now, when I talk about Israel, this is significant. This whole point is that Israel is involved. There are two kinds of Israel. There is ethnic Israel, which are the physical descendants of Abraham through the children of promise. That would be Isaac and Jacob. You can go back to the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 12, that that belongs to his physical descendants. There is also spiritual Israel. These are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. What do I mean by that? Those who have faith in God and receive the fulfillment of his promises through the promised Child, Ultimately, that final promised child is Jesus. The fulfillment of all the promises that God ever made Abraham. There's overlapping membership between ethnic Israel and the Gentiles due to the fact that Jesus is available to all of us. So, you could be an ethnic Israelite who is a physical descendant of Abraham and not be a spiritual Israelite because you reject Jesus. You could be a spiritual Israelite who has accepted Jesus, but not an ethnic Israelite because you're not a physical descendant of Abraham. But because these 12 tribes are listed right here, we are not purely talking about spiritual Israel. We're talking about the flesh and blood descendants of Abraham, who, by the way, for 2,000 plus years have rejected 
Jesus. So much so to the point that in John, this is not on your handout, but in John 8 verse 39, when the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, Abraham's our father, Jesus says, no, he's not, because if he were your father, you'd do the things he did. You'd have the faith that he had. You're ethnic Israel, but you are not spiritual Israel. In Romans 9, Paul says uh, in verse 6, they are not all of Israel who are of Israel. That there are some Israelites who bank their relationship with God on their blood and not Jesus's, And that doesn't work. For 2,000 years, the vast majority of the physical descendants of Abraham have rejected Jesus as their Messiah and King. In Matthew 27, the chief priests and elders in in verse 20 persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. When they got to choose between their King and Messiah or a murderer, they chose the murderer and convinced everybody else to go along with them. And then when Pilate, a pagan Roman, said this is an innocent man, his blood be on your hands and not mine, they responded in verse 25, all the people answered and said his blood be on us and on our children. That we're proud to kill this man. We don't want him counted as one of us. When the Jewish religious community in Rome heard Paul speak, this happened. Some were persuaded, Acts 28, verse 24, some were persuaded by the things which were spoken and some disbelieved. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people, the Jewish people, and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their eyes are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of the God has been sent to the Gentiles. Glory to God, because that's us. And they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute amongst themselves. And do you know that dispute continues to this very day? That there are Jews today who have recognized Jesus as their Messiah. And they plead with their brothers and sisters, Y'all, the man that we've been waiting for, the son of David, the king of the universe, has come to us in Jesus of Nazareth. And if you will just turn to him, we'll be restored. But they say, no, no. No, no, we don't want him. He's a blasphemer. He's a liar. Don't talk to me about the Nazarene. We're still waiting. That God hasn't given up on us and we're not going to give up on him. That he'll send Messiah one day. And they plug their, they close their eyes and they plug their ears like Paul said. But God has always said, and he says again here, if they will just turn, I'm right here. Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 says that one day I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. What is happening in Revelation 7? That. 
that God has poured out His Holy Spirit on the Jewish nation as a whole. And they all, as scales fall from their eyes, say, what have we been doing for 2,000 years? It was Him the whole time. It's always been Jesus. And we've rejected Him. And we've denied Him. And we crucified Him. And our Father said, the, the blame for His blood be on us and our children. But now, in Revelation 7, they say, His blood, please be on us and on our children. Please, Jesus, forgive us. Bring us home. Father, I have sinned against You and against Your... But they can't talk anymore because the Father ran down the road and embraced them and put His robe on them and put His ring on their finger and put sandals on their feet and wept on their feet and said, Son, I've been waiting for You to come home. Kill the fattened calf. I've been waiting the whole time for You to come up that road. And I knew You would one day. It just took You 2,000 years to do it. Now let me give You everything I've been waiting on it. That There is a massive revival in the Jewish nation and a missionary movement like the world has never seen happens in these eight verses. Y'all, if you think the cooperative program is going to reach the world for Jesus, wait until Israel wakes up. They're going to laugh at our little paltry effort. God has not forgotten His chosen people. They've just forgotten Him. But Josh, why are you talking to me about this? We're not Jews. What does this have to do with me? Y'all listen. If God can take the Israelite nation who is so far gone and dispersed right now that if you know a Jew, they don't know what tribe they're part of. They've been so diluted and dispersed through the Roman diaspora and they've been so intermarried with different nations, they don't know what tribe they are. They don't know if they're descended from a priest and could serve in a temple if one was built. They don't know if they're of Judah or of Reuben or of Naphtali or of Zebulun. They don't know any of this. And yet God seems to have the record books waiting in heaven to bust out. He knows who they are. He knows where they are. If God can take a people that have been gone for 2,000 years, have rejected Him at every turn, and He can bring them home and turn them into the most powerful missionaries the world has ever seen, what do you think He can do to that person that you gave up on? What do you think He can do to that town that you've given up on? Stapleton's just too far gone. They don't want to hear us. They don't want to respond to God. It's so broken. They're so apathetic that we've tried over and over and over and over and over again. And they don't want to listen. I don't think our church can grow. I don't think there's anybody left here to be saved. My son's gone. My daughter's gone. My brother's gone. My sister's gone. My mom and dad won't listen. God, can you do anything? Absolutely. The question is not whether or not God will turn. The question is whether or not you'll trust Him to keep, keep on hammering until He turns them. Do not give up. If you think somebody else is gone, 
Acts chapter 9, verse 13 through 15. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. How much he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind who call on his name. God, I've heard much about this person. They're so drunk they couldn't find their way to the car last night. They're violent. They blaspheme. They cuss. I bet they even play cards. By the way, y'all, playing cards isn't a sin. Just throwing that out for the old school Baptist. Wanted to stick a burr under your saddle. <laughs> They're too far gone, God says. <laughs> I can turn a murderer into a man who wrote 75% of the New Testament. What do you think I can do to them? But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. There's your application, y'all. It's real basic. Don't give up. Well, pastor, what am I supposed to do? Who turned Israel in Revelation chapter 7, y'all? Who turned them? Who brought them home? God did. So, you're right. You might not be able to...